There is no place in this Republican Party for such hawkers of hate, such purveyors of prejudice. Such fabricators of fear, whether communists, Ku Klux Klan, or Birchers. That was New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller addressing the Republican Convention of 1964, denouncing the extremists that appeared to be taking over his party, only to be drowned out by boos and shouts by delegates backing that year's nominee, Barry Goldwater. Rockefeller's all-but-forgotten speech is the opening scene in journalist David Korn's new book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Korn draws a somewhat straight line from that moment when a Goldwater movement rife with followers of the John Birch Society and other extremist groups took over the GOP to the rise of Donald Trump more than a half century later, culminating in the events of January 6th when MAGA extremists stormed the U.S. Capitol and threatened the lives of lawmakers and the sitting vice president. Korn's book raises the question that hung over the events of 1964. Can the Republican Party be saved? And if it can't, can American democracy be saved? We'll talk to Korn on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, Senior Counsel for States United. So it's a pretty uh, provocative book by Korn, which uh, has some really fascinating historical nuggets in it. I mean, his discussion of the whole Goldwater era and the role of the John Birch Society is, you know, we've all read about it in histories, but tying it into what we've all been living through in recent years is pretty illuminating. And of course, there are lots of sort of moments along the way when extremists have popped up and um, influenced the Republican Party, had voices in the Republican Party. I suspect a lot of people will think he's drawing too broad a picture there, but there's certainly a lot to talk about. And it does have relevance to what's going on right now. No question about that. There are also a lot of moments along the way where Republicans could have stood up against the, the conspiracy theorists and the and the sort of strain of extremism um, in their their base, and that of course is reminiscent of the Trump years when there were a lot of moments uh, where, and some indeed where it looked like the Republicans actually were going to stand up to Donald Trump and then flinched. And in the end, I think the reason all along has been the same, uh, which is uh, that they compromise because for you know. A, politically opportunistic reasons. And that's a hard dynamic to change. I don't think in the end, you know, reading David's book, uh, you can sort of fundamentally change the way politicians operate. I think you have to wait and over time hope that the people who fall prey to these extremist uh, views and conspiracy theories change. And that doesn't happen overnight. 
we could have a long time to wait. <laughs> but One of the, the more frightening differences between the kind of Goldwater Rockefeller era and today's Republicans who try to stand up to or kind of shift the course of their own party is, as Danny points out, there are a fair number of people who are opportunistically using these groups because they are their path to power or because they actually believe what these groups believe in. But there's now, a, at least based on some reporting, a pretty substantial or portion of the Republican politicians in D.C. who are actually scared of the violence that these groups might visit upon them. Uh, there's been reporting that um, there were a fair number of Republicans who would have voted to certify the 2020 election, but they were actually afraid for the safety of their families. And the same thing goes regarding the impeachment that happened in 2021. That's a yeah, that's that is a much that different. is a, that is a darker turn. And that is different. Which reminds me, Donald Trump himself gave an interview to you, you it this week, in which he practically threatened the Justice Department if they go down the road of indicting him. And uh, Mark, do we have that clip? Because it's definitely worth listening to. From running for president again. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. And as you know, if a thing like that happened... I would have no prohibition against running. You know that. You've already I do. Said. And that's what I want people to understand. That would not take you out of the arena. It would not. But I think if it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. What kind of problems, Mr. President? I think they'd have big problems. Big problems. I just don't think they'd stand for it. They will not, they will not sit still and stand for this ultimate of hoaxes. He's basically saying there, if you indict me, there will be blood on the streets. Now, you know, it's one thing when Lindsey Graham and, uh, says something like that, but to hear it from Trump himself, it's almost like a dare to Merrick Garland and the Justice Department. Yeah, go ahead and go ahead and indict me. You'll see what comes. And of course, we've got a judge in uh, Florida right now who is, you know, kind of at least from the judicial kind of legal standpoint, uh, aiding and abetting Donald Trump's claims that uh, this effort to prosecute him or to evaluate what's going on is completely illegitimate. And so in many ways, kind of feeding the mob that would come to his defense with uh, a variety of, quote unquote, legal justifications for why what the uh, DOJ and FBI are doing is wrong. But look, I, I, you know, I know that on MSNBC, all the legal analysts are going crazy saying this is the worst decision ever in the history of the federal judiciary and, you know, um, what a disgrace it is. But I think most, most people think Plessy v. Ferguson was worse. All right. Yeah. We yeah. <laughs> may have overstated, but yeah. listen to some of the clips of the uh, analysts with their heads exploding, yeah. uh, the regular legal commentators on cable. But look, you know, I do think the judge is grievously wrong when she, when she suggests there ought to be a separate standard for a former president than others. But at the end of the day, she appointed a pretty well-respected federal judge, uh, retired federal judge, Raymond Deary, to be the special master reviewing these documents. He has to report back by November 30. So it's clearly going to delay the Justice Department investigation. But if he comes back and uh, you know dismisses the idea that there's any executive privilege claims here by Trump, 
I think that will bolster the Justice Department's position in a way that it wouldn't have if you didn't have somebody like this looking at it. Maybe the fact that he was appointed would obviate the need for an appeal. Uh, by the time this uh, podcast is is out, I think we'll have the answer as to whether the Justice Department is appealing Judge Cannon's decision or not. But I would think that given what you just said, Mike, it seems less likely that they would appeal uh, because, of course, the dangers of setting uh, a bad precedent, particularly in the 11th Circuit, which is stacked with uh, Trump-appointed judges. So we'll have to see uh, what happens And let's remember, I mean, Judge Deary is one of the names recommended by Trump's own lawyers. So that will make it a bit harder for them to go after Deary if he comes back and dismisses these executive privilege claims. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this... This was an exercise in uh, dilatory tactics, right? The whole point of this was just to delay things. And they succeeded in doing that, at least until after the election, right? So obviously, uh, DOJ and and Judge Cannon in in Florida are kind of playing a little bit of a cat and mouse game right now about what's going to happen. On the one hand, you could certainly see DOJ concluding that this is one strange one-off district court judge ruling that we don't need to worry about because it's not going to have precedential value. It's not going to actually impact future efforts to enforce the Espionage Act and deal with classified material with non-former presidents. So just kind of put it in a box and leave it over there as this one weird one-off situation. But for the case itself, and for kind of her the the kind of the broader scope of of her ruling, you can certainly see DOJ believing that they've got to take this to the Eleventh Circuit. That it's so egregious that they can't really just let it sit out there. They can't let a judge get away with this. I mean, I think they've got actually got a really hard decision that they need to be making in the next seventy two hours. Their you know kind of initial effort to make the subject of the appeal very narrow to basically classified information and to their ability to continue to use that information for counter espionage and for kind of other investigative purposes is a solid one to take up to the 11th circuit. And even as conservative as the 11th circuit is, you know, the DOJ has got to believe they've got a pretty strong chance there. And even with the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, specifically because it's, it's narrowly tailored to national security and that's where federal judges are going to be most uh, deferential, whether they're Republican appointed judges or democratically appointed judges. So it'll be interesting to see right. uh, what they what they do here. But Victoria, if the concern here is delay, you know, it seems to me an appeal to the 11th Circuit, which then, you know, which will then go on bonk and which will then go to the Supreme Court uh, is going to lead to an even greater delay than just waiting for Deary to come back uh, on November 30. Well, un- unclear and also possible to do it uh, both in tandem, right? So you can you can certainly, while Deary is conducting his his work, you could appeal the issue of the classified material and the ability of the FBI, DOJ, and uh, DNI to continue looking at the classified. But wait material. a second. So what happens if the three judge panel that initial on the Eleventh Circuit initially hears the appeal and rules in DOJ's favor? What does Deary do at that point? I mean, no, if he keeps been, going, Gary's going to be keeps going, at, even though the yeah, 11th Circuit says there's no grounds for the special master to review any of these documents. 
and he he continues to review them. I think DOJ is just going to limit it to the classified material, which is no, only the classified documents. Yeah, the one hundred amongst the thousands. Amongst right, the one hundred classified documents. That's he what I'm saying. He keeps looking at the other nine hundred. But he has been told to review the one hundred classified documents first. That's his first task as special master. Okay, so he puts those on hold and then he turns to the other nine hundred. I don't know. We will we will see. But, right. uh, you There's know, a way it is to do a tough it. One. All, right. All right. Before we go, before we yeah. go, uh, one more plug for the uh, excellent uh, fourth season of Conspiracy Land, the Skullduggery spinoff that uh, our very own uh, Mike Isakoff hosts. That is a uh, deep dive into conspiracy theories and their political uses. Season four focuses on Havana syndrome. And uh, the impact uh, that that had on U.S.-Cuban relations uh, in the aftermath of the opening to Cuba during the Obama administration. It's a fascinating and surprising story. So recommended to everybody. I think all... All of the episodes and the bonus episodes have dropped. They're all now up. Yeah. Uh, well, the bonus episode is going to be coming up later on Friday, but the guts of it are all out there. And I'll just say one, um, you know, one comment I want to make on this. I can't remember if I've already said this on uh, Skullduggery, but look, Conspiracy Land is about conspiracy theories. And, you know, when you when you expose, you know, QAnon or MAGA deniers, that's pretty easy pickings. You know, we all accept this. That's nutty stuff. Far more challenging, but I think just as important, is when conspiracy theories get adopted by the mainstream media because they're compelling and because they fit more acceptable political narratives. But you still have to ask the same tough, relentless questions. Is there evidence to back these up? And Mike, this is this is a conspiracy, correct me if I'm wrong, that involves a special Russian weapon that projects sound waves at US diplomats. Microwaves. Oh, microwaves yes. At, yes. At, at, and gives them headaches and worse. And worse in some cases. And just a couple of quick points. There's no question some people got very sick. You know, and that is, and these are medical mysteries. It's a medical story, but it was turned into a political story first About by Russian the Trump microwave. Weapons. Well, first the Trump folks blamed it on the Cubans and used it as an excuse to pull out our uh, uh, embassy staffers from the U.S. embassy in, in Havana. And then over time, it got adopted into no, it's the Russians who are doing it. And of course, we all, for good reason, believe the worst about the Russians. They assassinate. Dissidents and defectors. They invade countries. Very exotic weapons. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't mean that there was anything to the idea that they were zapping people with microwave guns all over the world, including in the United States, including on the grounds of the White House, which 60 Minutes was, you know, did a full half hour on. Uh, And, um, you know, it's kind of like Saddam Hussein. He was a horrible tyrannical dictator, but he didn't happen to have weapons of mass destruction that was used as a basis for an American invasion. So- and what's fascinating about this story, and which makes it, Mike, to your point, more complicated, is there actually is a long history of, during the Cold War, both the United States and the Soviet Union trying to develop 
uh, yes. exactly these kinds um, of weapons. Um, so this is uh, not the same as QAnon, where you're talking about these uh, completely insane conspiracy theories about, you know, child trafficking, pedophiles, <laughs> drinking, yeah. you know, satanic pedophiles, drinking blood. Uh, right. This is more rooted in the real world uh, than those other ones. And that makes it more complicated. Right. But anyway, uh, folks can listen. Um, uh, Conspiracy Land, it's three episodes, three bonus episodes. It's out now. Uh, the second one, by the way, is called The Mystery of the Moscow Sing Signal, which is a, a walk down the, the, a, the Cold War conflict over uh, uh, microwaves. So well worth your listening to, but we've got a great discussion to have with our guests. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us David Korn, Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones, an MSNBC analyst, and the author of the new book, American Psychosis, A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. David, welcome back to Skullduggery. Always great to be with you. Yeah, and I want to say, um, you know, I was particularly excited about having you on because I was such a big fan of your last book, um, which was sort of a, yeah. Anyway. Well, I got to tell you, this book yeah. was so much easier to write for somebody. <laughs> yeah, you, really you didn't have anybody it, to argue with. It, was, it, was, it, it felt like a breeze. For the benefit of our listeners, should we clarify that Michael Isikoff was <laughs> is the co-author of David Korn's last book? Let's just not name it, you know. Let's just... <laughs> Russian roulette. And that's the last fun. time David was on when um, we launched the book so many years ago. Anyway, but let's talk about this one. I thought it was really interesting the way you started the book with the Goldwater Convention in San Francisco in 1964 and Nelson Rockefeller trying to get past a resolution condemning extremism in the Republican Party and getting booed and shouted down by the Goldwater delegates. And you draw, you say, not a straight line, but a line that takes zigs and zags to the ascendance of Donald Trump. Take us through what that line is. Yeah, I mean, the, the premise of the book is that the Republican Party for seven decades now has had this relationship with far-right fanaticism, and that the party has encouraged and exploited various forms of extremism, bigotry, racism, paranoia, conspiracy theories, tribalism. And, you know, it's waxed and waned over the years, but it's been a constant part of the Republican project and essential often, not all the time, but often to them winning elections. And it starts with McCarthyism, but you pick up in 64, where the party has basically formed an alliance with the John Birch Society, which was McCarthyism on steroids. It was the QAnon of its day, believing that Eisenhower himself was a commie agent and that the commies had taken over not just the U.S. government, but every major corporation, every major union, PTAs, churches, book reviews. There were Soviet weather satellites. There was the fluoridation of the water. I mean, it just went on and on and on, the various conspiracy nuttery of the John Birch Society. And there were some Republicans 
we would now call them moderate or maybe liberal Republicans, who were aghast at the fact that the party was being subsumed in some places by the Birchers and this conspiratorial extremism. And they put forward this resolution at 64 to condemn just three organizations, Communist Party, sounds pretty good for Republicans, right? The Ku Klux Klan, yeah, most Republicans would probably want to condemn them, and then all, maybe not all, and the John Birch Society. And the and Nelson Rockefeller was shouted down. And in fact, people threw things at him at the convention, and there was the reporters there wrote that they worried that it would turn violent. And the reason why is that Barry Goldwater was wanted to use the John Birch Society, its foot soldiers or 10 to 100,000 of them. A lot of them were heavy donors. They were very big in some key states. He won the primary in California against Nelson Rockefeller with the help of the John Birch Society and other like-minded kooky far-right extremists. So the, delegate, the delegates reflected that. And they shouted down and would not pass this resolution. And so here was, in some ways, an official acclamation of the Republican Party accepting a QAnon-like organization. Yeah, let me just follow up on on this uh, story about the Birch Society, because you, you tell a story that in some ways, David, I think kind of makes your thesis about the Republican Party and its willingness to, you know, exploit these forces and also not really take a stand. And that involves um, William F. Buckley, the founding editor of National Review. I think you call him a guru of the conservative movement. And he did want to take a stand against the Birchers. But in the end, there was a, a compromise. And to me, that story spoke of this larger compromise that the Republican Party has made since the 50s. So tell that story. Yeah, it's a good story because in the shorthand version of it that conservatives tell themselves and tell the rest of us, William F. Buckley excommunicated the John Birch Society and the kooks, as they called them back in the day in Republican circles, from the conservative movement and from the Republican Party. And that kind of happened, but later. In 1961, as Goldwater was getting ready and thinking about running for president, and as the Birchers, who had only been formed two, three years earlier, were taking you know this larger than than, than life size role within Republican circles, Goldwater reached out to to Buckley, who was concerned about the Bircher influence in the movement, and said, "You know what?" Right now, I think we need to let it ride. This is Goldwater talking to Buckley. Let, let's stick together on this. Goldwater was the leader of this new rising conservative movement, political leader. A lot of people wanted, thought he was their prophet and should be their presidential nominee. And Buckley was the intellectual godfather of the movement. So it would make sense that they would try to come to a consensus position on what to do about the Birchers. And so Goldwater reaches out to Buckley, writes him a letter and says, let's stick together on this. Let's not, you know, basically strike at them now. And so Buckley takes a little poke at Robert Welch, the head of the John Birch Society, saying that maybe the communists don't control everything, but it's not a denunciation. It's not a disavowal. And he, you know, he says that, he also says Welch is a great patriot and a wonderful anti-communist. And then a year later, as the Birch's stuff becomes more 
of an issue or a problem within the media. It comes out that Robert Welch, the head of the society, had written a manuscript in which he called Eisenhower a communist agent who was being run by his brother, Milton Eisenhower. We all remember Milton, right? And this got into the news. It was a meet the press. It was a whole big to do. And it highlighted to Buckley that they still had to do something about this. Well, Goldwater in public kept praising the John Birch Society, but they had a meeting, might call it a secret meeting at a fancy Florida hotel in early 62 with Buckley and Goldwater and a few other leaders of the right at that point in time. And they argued the point and Buckley wanted to take a stronger stand against the Birch Society, but they reached this compromise that you referenced in which they would attack or criticize Robert Welch and call on him to leave the society to resign, but they would praise the membership of the society and say that it was a it was a positive thing, which is what they did. Buckley wrote an editorial saying that, and Goldwater, you know, basically seconded it. But the problem is that the Birches themselves were Birchers because they believed what Robert Welch said. You know, it wasn't as if, oh my God, we've we've been fooled by this man. They were as crazy as he was, if not crazier. So, and in, in the end, Welch did not resign. He stayed as head of the society. The Birchers stayed Birchers, and they flooded into the Goldwater movement and political campaign. So, and Buckley at that point never said anything again. Well, I mean, they never said anything major again until 65, when he finally said, it's time to take the whole root out of the conservative movement. But he let it ride so that Goldwater could indeed use them in the campaign. Well, we'll get into this later, but what's interesting about it to me is it's kind of a microcosm of the larger story that we're in now with Trump and then the Trump voters, you know, who are the source of all of that power. Why do we stretch that string maybe to the present day? And if you were trying to write a comparable resolution for the presumably 2024 Republican nominating convention, you would probably write a resolution if anyone is willing to write that resolution at the forthcoming convention, it would probably include the Communist Party. But then when you got to the Ku Klux Klan, you would probably have to say the Oath Keepers, the Aryan Nation, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys. And then you would get to the John Birch Society and you would probably have to say QAnon. I mean, the list would go on and on yeah. and on and on. And how would the vote turn out in 2024 if this uh, prospective resolution were offered? You know, that's a great question. I wish I had thought of that first, that idea. But you're right. It would fail. It would fail miserably. I mean, Donald Trump, was it earlier today or yesterday, tweeted out a QAnon meme that, you know, showed him wearing a Q button. So here he is reinforcing, you know, the QAnon conspiracy theory. And I write about this in the book, too. He's been doing this for, for years now, he embraced Alex Jones in 2015 when he was running for president. In fact, I remember at the Cleveland Convention in 2016 that uh, Alex Jones got into the convention and he was wearing a special guest pass courtesy of the Republican National Committee. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, if you try to do that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they would let Adam Kinzinger in the door. But because there is no like Nelson Rockefeller left anymore in the party. But if someone managed to get in the door and propose that sort of resolution, it would fail miserably. 
Really? You think if 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 there was a resolution condemning the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, you know, racist militias and others who engage in violence, you think that would fail? I mean, I yes. you look at Republican office holders in Congress, leave aside the fringe, you know, uh, Marjorie well, Taylor Greene and those like. people. But, you know, I, I, members of Congress, even even, you know, oh, the, oh, what? I I, this may be the biggest disagreement you and I have ever had. Okay. I mean, I'm just saying they, they none of them will embrace the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers. The delegates are the ones who vote to begin with. And some right. of them are, include office holders, but it's a majority not. It's, you know, is somewhat reflective of, of the base. Look, you just had Donald Trump come out days ago and say that he would pardon Anybody yeah. who's no, arrested for, yeah. for, yeah, right. for beating up a, a cop. Yeah. And so if you came out and, and had a resolution condemning January 6th and the violence that occurred there. The violence, yeah. No, but I, I don't think that would pass. Look at CPAC. They have people there, you know, pretending to be the martyrs. They treat them as if they're religious icons. And, you know, reciting Christian prayers inside these makeshift prisons and people are literally paying homage to them as if you're visiting the site of a martyred saint. I yeah. mean, I, so I mean, I, I don't in my mind, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm wrong here, but, I, you know, maybe maybe they could get 30 percent of the vote. But in my mind, it's almost a, it never even hits the floor. And if it did, it would be shouted down because people would see it as being the work of the libs and to own the libs you have to vote this down so how did we get to this state how did we get to the point where you know that that could be proposed in in the 1960s how there was a lot of kind of backroom dealing to to kind of address the problem you know there there was a there was an effort to deal with the problem but today there's literally probably no effort to deal with it. And those who have tried to kind of address the problem are, are almost run out of the, the party now. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that is indeed, you know, partly the $64,000 question. I mean, the book describes this as a continuation, that Trump is a continuation, not an aberration from this practice of encouraging and exploiting extremism. And you had, you know, it, it's waxed and waned over the years. And Nixon focused on reaching out to Southern segregationists and white supremacists. Um, Ronald Reagan embraced the religious right when its leaders, some of them, not all of them, but some of them were calling for executing homosexuals and saying that gay people wanted to kill other Americans. I mean, that's about as extreme as it gets. But if you sort of pick it up you know, the, the string back up, say, in the Newt Gingrich days in, in, the, in the 90s, you have Newt Gingrich telling fellow Republicans that, you, you know, he's sending out this list of words, you all remember this, that you should label Democrats as traitors, treasonous, anti-children, radicals, enemies of the state, basically. And that is how we need to describe the other side. It needs to be, you know, we need to have something that's worse than the Civil War. I mean, this, these are all Newt Gingrich's ways of, you know, of weaponizing political differences and using this very violent language. And you had Rush Limbaugh doing it to millions each day on the radio. There was a real con congruency or of strategies between Rush on the radio and Newt in, in the House. And I think, you know, the Republican base, which was always prone to right-wing extremism and paranoia, going back to the McCarthy days and the Birch societies, and some of them actually, you know, being racist or worrying about 
blacks gaining too much power and too much advantage, that kind of fed into this as well. And you're telling them that the other side wants to destroy America. They're not, they're, not that they're wrong, but they want to destroy America. And you can look at the 88 uh, election as a good encapsulation of this. George H.W. Bush, by all means, a country club, moderate Republican, very you know, a kind man personally and attentive to friendships and relationships. He gets out there and with the help of Lee Atwater and Roger Ailes, he calls Michael Dukakis basically an un-American, anti-American. He doesn't, he's not a patriot, you know, he doesn't like the flag, he doesn't like the ACLU. And at the time, it's kind of quaint. If you go back and look at the, you know, all the books written and all the commentary of the political press at the time, they call this the worst, meanest, you know, campaign ever. They are aghast at how George H.W. Bush, this fellow of noblesse oblige, is demeaning and lowering the political discourse in this country. And what did Michael Dukakis say? I don't like his policies. You know, I have better policies. And you know, he's not demonizing. He's not riling up the Democratic base. And then, yeah, go so back to the 90s, back to you know, the 2000s, where George W. Bush is using the Christian coalition to beat back John McCain. And then you get up to Sarah Palin. And I think each of these iterations, you know, the Republican Party is both exploiting fear, paranoia, irrationality, fundamentalism, and encouraging it. It's telling its base, this is how you should see the other side. Okay, David, but the, I mean, the deeper question here, the Republican Party has to have a group of people who are vulnerable to that. And the, and the yes. deeper question is that, you know, why is this kind of extremism, these kinds of conspiracy theories, so much more prevalent on the right than on the left? I mean, that is in some ways the question because Trump is just one guy. Newt was just one guy. Rush was just one guy with a big mouth. And the issue with all of them is that they found an audience, right? They found millions of people. Donald Trump got more voters in 2020 than he got in 2016. So whatever he did the last four years turned on a whole bunch of people. And so, you know, you're asking, why does it work? Why does demagoguery work? And in this country, what we've seen, it usually works on the right, you know, you had Huey Long and a few others on the left, but but the paranoid irrationality, the QAnon stuff, you know, really lands on the right. But let me just finish this. Let me finish this one point. I mean, and it's it's a difficult question, I think, to ask a difficult and a harder one to get a complete answer on. But there are a lot of people in the last 10, 20 years, social scientists who have studied political psychology and come up with personality types to then one way or the other, who people are driven by fear, people are driven by hope, people who want strong authoritarianism, and people who are more communal oriented. And the right has a lot of these qualities that seem to lend itself to strong man authoritarianism that comes with stories of fear and paranoia. I think, you know, anecdotally, or if you look exper experientially, it seems that there is something to that, but it's hard to quantify, Mike. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, in your fascinating tour of the conspiracy theories that have been embraced by prominent backers of the Republican Party or prominent voices, um, you reminded me of one I had completely forgotten about, even though I'd written about it at the time, and that is Pat Robertson and the Illuminati. He wrote a whole book about this, yeah. and it is as wacky as they come, just sort of tell the story of 
Pat Robertson. Yeah, and, and let me let, and let yeah. me tip my hat to you. And the fun thing about doing this project, yeah. unlike the books that you and I have written, you know, I, I basically took myself into a small room, which we all did during the pandemic, and got like two to three hundred books. You know, went to presidential archives virtually and went back and read hundreds, if not thousands, of magazine articles and newspaper articles. And what I found from uh, 1991, I believe, was one by Mr. Michael Isakoff about this book that Pat Robertson had written, which I, I have to say, I, I, I kind of recalled and I knew about already. So The New World Order, I think it was called. It was called or? The New World Order. And it, in this book, okay, we have to say, so Pat Robertson was a televangelist who was very prominent, made a lot of money. He spoke in tongues. He said that Jesus, you know, was coming. There would be an Armageddon between the Soviet Union and Israel. And he kept predicting that, that God would destroy Disneyland and other places because of gay rights. Really pretty far out there, as he still is to this very day. And he formed something called the Christian Coalition in 1990 that was very powerful and very popular and that the Republican Party embraced because it volunteered for Republicans to give money to them and help them win elections. And so in 1991, a year or two into the existence of the Christian Coalition, he writes this book called The New World Order, which is basically an amalgamation of every every conspiracy theory that has existed in Western civilization, the Illuminati, the Masons, basically tell, a, tell people what the Illuminati. Well, was. It, these are secret societies that supposedly run, run, the, <laughs> run the world. Eighteenth century secret yeah, society. Yeah, this was in the yeah in the eighteen hundreds, um, and the Masons were in, also kind of in the early uh, period, and he claimed that. These secret societies and others, as well as occultists, the Communist Party, the Rothschilds, blink, 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 anti-Semitism, you know, Jewish, uh, you know, Jewish banking family, other bankers, the Trilateral Commission, the Federal Reserve, Henry Kissinger were all part of a cabal to impose a collectivist one world government on the entire planet for Lucifer, literally, not metaphorically. This was a satanic plot. They all were serving Satan. And this had been going on for years. It was anti-Semitic. I mean, the book was just, you know, you know complete nutso. Uh, even the Wall Street Journal said this is just unbelievably, you know, full of back crap, crazy stuff. And it comes out, it's a bestseller, sells a couple hundred thousand copies. And a few months after it comes out, who headlines the Christian Coalition Conference annual convention? George H.W. Bush, the guy who Robinson had pegged as being an accomplice. Right. I mean, the, 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 the title of the book is a play off of one of Bush's own, yes. yeah, its own words, the, the New World Order. That's what he said was going to come after the fall of the Cold War. End of the Cold after War. the fall of the Soviet Union, we should have a New World Order. And for some reason, that convinced Pat Robinson that Bush was advancing the satanic plot to serve Satan. And so here he is, you know, basically going to this convention and thanking Pat Robertson for uplifting the spiritual nature of America. And then he go, he makes it even worse. He goes to Pat Robertson's estate to meet with Pat Robertson's key donors. Well, 
Someone's playing the harp and black swans are floating in the pool in the Rose Garden. And you know, this falls down to you know, one of the themes of the book, which is how the Republicans have again and again and again, leading top Republicans, validated and legitimized the craziest stuff, whether it was from the Tea Party and Glenn Beck, was it with Pat Robertson, whether it was Joe McCarthy and the John Birch Society. And so they may say, oh, we don't really buy this. We don't believe this. But they're out there telling hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans, that you should believe this. You should believe that the Democrats are part of a satanic cabal, uh, that you know they're not normal people. And if you start telling people that, you got to keep feeding them the red meat, which I think leads to Donald Trump in 2016, you know, after Sarah Palin said that Barack Obama was basically a terrorist who wanted to destroy America, after Glenn Beck said in 2008, 2009, he was building concentration camps and death panels to impose dictatorship, and that was a core element of the Tea Party. You know, in 2016, a couple of years later, you have these 15 established Republicans talking about who has the better perspective on capital gains. And, you know, you have one guy, Donald Trump, saying, hey, you know, they're trying to destroy the world. I'm going to say no to that. So what at this point in time do you think the base is going to do? They're not going to go for Jeb Bush because of his housing policy. They've been conditioned. They've been kind of radicalized. You know, we talk about radicalization in other parts of the, of, of the, of the world. So, David, let me let me push back on you a little bit about this, because, you know, there's some people who would say that this strain of ideology or this strain of voters has existed throughout American history. And they've attached themselves to a variety of parties, regardless of what they call themselves. I mean, certainly they attached themselves to the Democratic Party of the of the late 19th century or to the know nothings of the early 19th century. And or the Democratic Party in, in the South and, until racist campaigns throughout the you know this 19th century and that this is this is just a kind of a perpetual undercurrent in American history that parties crack up and reshape themselves but that there's always a, like a 25 percent of the American voters who are prone to this sort of stuff and and despite it all you know in the last 50 years we've seen a significant expansion in uh you know in gay rights and women's rights in a variety of economic rights and so you know really what we have to do is just kind of accept that this is a part of of America that there are parties that are always going to cater to them one way or another but we move on well there is something to that victoria but in the 1850s it led to a civil war with 700,000 dead Americans on both sides, right? It's all, you're right. I mean, my book has an, you know, has an early chapter about the role of conspiracy theory in American politics up to when I really start the narrative, which is in the late 40s and early 50s with, with the Republicans. And indeed, there was anti-Catholic you know, bigotry that the Republicans took advantage of, and Democrats, as Mike just noted, were more uh, aligned a lot of places with the Klan in the South and in the Midwest. So yes, there's always been extremism and conspiracy theory out there that has attached itself to different parties and different part and the different parties have exploited. If you look at the Democratic Party, though, you see the instance of a party rising above its attachment to bigotry and extremism. When Lyndon Johnson signed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he said, "There goes the South." And just think about this. This was Lyndon Johnson. All he cared about was winning elections up until that point in time. And he was from the South. And he, you know, 
did what he thought was right and took a stand. And he, and he was correct. The Democrats did lose the South and it made it much harder for them to win elections in the future and up to and up until this very day. But they rose above that. And I think what we've seen, you know, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm focusing on, you know, the antecedents. I would call them the immediate antecedents rather than going back to the 1800s and early 1900s, the immediate antecedents to where we are now with the Republican Party. And we've reached a point where the party itself, and I think this is different than in the past exploiting anti-Catholic bigotry or even exploiting you know, racism, as terrible as those things are, we've reached a slightly different point or maybe a fundamentally different point in which the Republican Party is now aligned and now being led by people who are anti-democratic, you know, overturning an election, inciting violence. Now, of course, you know, they did this in the South and with um, the Civil War, but, you know, that was a long time ago. And basically saying that they don't believe in the fundamentals of democracy and threatening the republic in that manner. So I think that makes it different. Okay, wait, I have a I have a follow-up question, which is, uh, which is, David, where do you figure corporate America's alliance with parties in this? So to, to what extent is, is corporate America willing or not willing to kind of lie down in bed with a party that affiliates with these types of groups? I mean, it's, that's a really great, great question, because in the past, corporate America follows corporate interests, right? And often they're easy to define and to, and to figure out. You know, we have seen in the last couple of years through Trumpism, um, a little bit of, of, of a confusion there. You know, some corporations have gotten behind the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, maybe they're doing it crassly because they think it's good for business or it's good for, you know, human re uh, relations within their businesses to attract the right type of people they need to, to work. But then you see the right, which is usually the home of corporate America, attacking them for being overly woke and being on the wrong side of the culture war and even threatening them. And you saw this with the pandemic, with Ron DeSantis attacking businesses who are deciding on their own that it's best to have mask mandates or vac vaccine mandates. And here he was, you know, Republican Party was supposed to let businesses decide what was best on their, on their, for, for themselves, you're coming and saying, you can't do this which seems like almost an element of, of fascism in some ways, but nevertheless. So I think, you know, and then and the part, and the corporations have tended to overlook what the Republicans were doing in terms of culture wars and such, if they were getting their tax breaks and their, you know, deregulation and things like that. I think things have gotten a little bit jumbled in the past few years because they also have to think about the stability of the country. And if Trump is a D and Trumpism, if these are destabilizing forces, if the crazy Republicans are going to blow through the, the debt ceiling and default and cause economic crisis that way, they have a much more difficult calculus to make. Maybe they'll get tax cuts and deregulation, but maybe they'll get destabilization and have a hard time. They don't want they don't want a trade war with China if it hurts them. So I think it's 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 a, it's a lot less clearer of a of a picture. Okay, so Biden gave this big speech a couple of weeks ago, denouncing the extremism of MAGA Republicans and the, and their semi-fascism, but he drew a distinction 
between, you know, the MAGA extremists and mainstream Republicans. As I read your book, you're essentially arguing that the entire Republican Party has been contaminated by the MAGA extremism, which suggests to me you fundamentally reject the distinction that Biden was making in his speech. Yeah, I understand why he does that for political reasons. And I'll, I'll first say that I think it was a very brave speech and that I know it was really hard for him to say these things. This is a guy who came of the Senate where the best senators are the ones who work across the aisle. They get these grand compromises. You know, they, they go out for drinks afterwards, with people they disagree with. And, you know, and when he ran for president, he talked about uniting the country, as did Barack Obama back in 2008. So I think coming out with a speech with that is indeed divisive, I think as it ought to be, I think justifiably divisive by identifying these forces out there that are a threat to democracy. I think, you know, that was a hard thing. And, I, and, and you know, I want, I'm not sure brave is the right word for it, but, um, you know, I was, I would say I was glad, but I was encouraged that he was, he was engaging this debate and this discussion. You know, he tried to give the, you know, and, you know, this is. But he did make a distinction I know, I know, I know. that you don't it's make. A, it's, a, it's a common tactic in politics to grant the other side more good faith or more of the benefit of the doubt when you're attacking them because you yourself then look more reasonable. And he was saying there were MAGA Republicans and mainline Republicans. Yes, there are mainline Republicans. There were 10 of them who voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump, and now they're all gone. Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and the, and the rest, they've all been excommunicated or fled before they could be excommunicated from the party. There are people out there who may, may be in secret, you know, still have their mainline Republican thoughts, but in practice, they don't engage them or share them with the rest of us. So, you know, he was speaking perhaps more aspirationally. I mean, the point of my book, you know, in some ways you could look at, 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 look at American Psychosis as a history of the dark side of the GOP. I am not saying this is the entirety of the GOP, but it's always been there. The party itself has tended not to acknowledge it. And I do believe the media and historians have undercovered its role. You know, you had, you know, you could look at the, the George Bushes as people want to legislate, be kinder and gentler, compassionate, but they still were, you know, tending to the dark side. And I do think that we've gotten to the point now, you know, and there must be some sort of Lord of the Rings reference here, where the dark, dark side, the darkness, has just expanded. I don't know if exponentially, but expanded great. So it's blotted out. You know, the Bobby Jindals and the Jeb Bushes, the guys who and Mitt Romney's who I'm not saying they didn't get where they were not uninvolved with this stuff. I mean, Mitt Romney embraced Donald Trump when Donald Trump was the number one you know, perpetuator of the racist birther conspiracy theory. So they all have, you know, have some you know, have some blame on their hands. But this was not what I necessarily defined. Mitt Romney that. voted to impeach. Wait, wait. Mitt Romney voted to impeach Donald Trump. But yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. He is twice. You know, I believe. Now he has. But when he ran, when he was running for president, he legitimized Donald Trump as he was, you know, being a num the number one racist birther out there. So but just to finish up, Danny, for a second. So I, I do think, you know, that it's it's like, isn't it pretty to think so? One of the Hemingway's great line that there are mainline Republicans out there who can come back and you know regain control of the party. I think in some ways, well, I think what the book shows is that you can't just flip the switch and go back 
to a golden age of Republicans. This stuff has always been there. And once it's further and further out of the bottle, I don't know how you put it Well, that's what I wanted to pick up on, because, you know, in your epilogue, you say that Trump is not the source, fundamentally not the source of this crisis. You say that conservative movement is not the source of this crisis. The Republican Party is not the source of the crisis. Right-wing media is not the source of this crisis. The people, Republicans, voters, they're the source of the crisis. So what do you do about that? How do you break the fever? Yeah, well, you know, uh, know, we use the fever, you know, metaphor a lot in in talking about this issue and politics. They talked about the fever with with, with the Tea Party movement as, as well. And I'm not sure that's the way to look at it. Maybe it's some degree of leprosy or a virus or something in that I think now we've reached a point where we can argue over the numbers, but 20, 15, 20, 30 percent of America is unreachable, that they believe in the big lie. They believe Obama's a secret Muslim. Uh, They don't believe the media will ever tell them the truth. Everything's a plot against them. and, And they can't be convinced otherwise. And the more you try to convince them, the more they say, see, I know what you're doing here. And I was on with Joe Scarborough uh, a couple of days ago, and I had what I thought was a fantastic and very interesting conversation in in which he talked with such a pained voice of the people he worked with, who worked on his campaigns, friends and family members who he can't talk to anymore because they're reading, uh, as he called it, Chinese you know, uh, cult sites and QAnon sites, and they refuse to believe anything in the news, and they won't even listen to him. Usually, like one of the keys of persuasion is peer to peer. You may not believe what you read in the New York Times, Danny, but if Mike tells you something, or Mike says, you know, I read this article and I think it, 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 you should read it, then you might read it. It's peer to peer persuasion. And so here was uh, Joe Scarborough saying that he did not even have that peer-to-peer ability anymore to convince people. When he used to, he said years ago, I said, no, no, you're wrong, read this, and they wouldn't. They go, okay, I think you're right. Um, so he's noticed this, you know, this change. So I think, you know, whatever you, however you account or count this portion of the public, we have to now start, people who are not that, which may be 70, 65% of the public, has has to figure out how to, segregate that. I don't mean physically, uh, like the old segregation. I mean, psychologically, politically, we may have to have two countries when it comes to reproductive rights. There may be states and areas of this country where you can't get contraception and where you are not allowed to be be married and be, and be gay, or just maybe so uncomfortable. And we may have to find ways to sort of not burn the fever off, you know, maybe wait demographically, 10, 20, 30 years for some of this to some of these people literally to die off and hope that a new generation is not as out there. I don't know how you win them over. I don't know how you persuade them. And they will continue to have disproportionate political power because of gerrymandering, which both sides do, but the Republicans have had the upper hand recently on gerrymandering and the structural well, you know, it, it does sound, I mean, at, college. listening to you talk, it does remind me that sort of echoes of what some on the left have talked about, including, I think, the New York Times columnist, uh, Michelle Goldberg, about, you know, literally the country fracturing and there being two Americas. Um, that's that's not quite what you're suggesting, right? Not, not, you know, well, I think maybe some degree of 
of fracturing and culturally. And I'm not saying that we're going to have Gilead in in Montana, but you know, or Idaho or or North Dakota, but you know, maybe something in that direction. And maybe so unfortunately, because it's easy for me to say this, I live in lovely uh suburban Maryland here, but some people might have to vote with their feet. If you want to live in a place where you where gay people are not demonized and where you women have full rights, you may have to move. I, I mean, because I don't, I, I think, you know, and I'd like to be proven wrong. I, I don't believe necessarily the pendulum swinging back and forth here. I believe we reached a point where there, you know, where we have kind of two Americas, and I think Republicans have fed fed this and and when I, I said encourage it that has helped it to grow doesn't mean I don't think they could have wiped it out but they've certainly lost control you know when Boehner embraced the Tea Party in order to become the House Speaker he brought these people into the the House and then he could not do what he wanted to do which was legislate compromises and get the country moving in certain ways and he ran before a mutiny could throw him out of out of power because th- that side did not want to compromise did not want to reach out um so how do you how do you have a country with 30% or whatever the number is who believes that you're trying to destroy the country and then any conversation of compromise with you is basically trading with the enemy some would say how do you have a democracy if one side your side doesn't accept the legitimacy of the other side i mean that's the nature of democracy one party doesn't get to choose its opposition you know it, right. it there is there has to be two competing political parties if american democracy is going to survive and some might argue you know your uh, analysis here is really, you know, a prescription to doom American democracy. Well, you know, it's very interesting. And, you know, we see this to the use of the word fascism in the last couple of weeks, right? You know, if you, if you look at the other side, if you're, say, you're, you're a Democrat, and you see them not accepting the legitimacy of an election, you see them plotting behind the scenes. I mean, the, as Liz Cheney has told us, there were six, seven different ways that Donald Trump plotted behind the scenes to overthrow the results and then inciting the riot, and then downplaying the riot or dismissing it, or supporting the guy who got it going and says he'll pardon it. You see all these things, and you see them trying to take control of electoral counting systems, and you go, oh my God, that is really bad. They're trying to destroy democracy. It looks like fascism. It's excessive. It's extreme. They are a threat to the country. Now, if you say that, I realize you can sound hyperbolic. You can sound like you're demonizing the demonizers, that you're saying, you know, that you're, you're trying to delegitimize delegit- people who have delegitimized the election, right, and, and democracy overall. And then they get out there and they get, you know, their, their backup. And even though Donald Trump campaigned saying that Joe Biden was in league with Antifa, radicals, communists, anarchists and Black Lives Matter to bring far left fascism to America. Even though he said all those things, they now say, how dare you? How dare you say that what we did was wrong and fascist and that we're a threat to democracy? You are because you stole the election. And from their perspective, they're the ones protecting democracy because the election was rigged. So what you're really talking about, Mike, is what happens 
when you have two sides and one side says, you know, the sky is blue, what should we do about it? And the other side says, no, it's purple, it's purple. You know, the sky is purple. You know, you can't have a debate about what to do. It's climate change is obviously an example here if you don't agree on the, uh, on the basics. And how do you call out a threat to democracy without giving that threat to democracy ammunition saying, see, you're just trying to demonize the people you don't like. It's, it's a conundrum. I think it's really difficult to figure out how to do this. But at some point, those people who agree and see a threat to democracy as a threat to democracy need to band together and try to do what they can. And I, you know, and I look at, you know, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinziger, you know, people like George Conway and Bill Crystal, um, Charlie Sykes and Scarborough. Who I mentioned, you know, people who I've had nothing to agree with up to now forming a popular front. And I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And I, you know, and I, 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 I hope enough Americans and citizens engage so that they end up coming to the right conclusion as well. The question is, is it an effective strategy? And, you know, some might argue, perhaps the answer is, you don't play on their terms. You rise above it and you don't accept you don't get into pointless, endless debates about the legitimacy of the 2020 election, because if you do, you're playing on those on their terms and you try to elevate the debate and you don't denounce. You, know, you got to make distinctions, the kind of distinctions that Biden was trying to make in order to reach out to those who might be persuadable, those who might be, um, can be talked down from the ledge, as it were. And the one thing you don't do is denounce them all the time, call them deplorable, say they're beyond the pale, because that is only going to embolden the people who you most Well, that's fear. What, well, Biden did what, Biden did what you wanted to do, right? And, you know, did it help him? I mean, the Republican Party at large, assailed him for this. Well, I think Biden's mistake was mixing in his accomplishments as president, the Inflation Reduction Act, Democratic Party positions, which really had no place in that debate. That's not what he was speaking about. He wasn't using it to advance, you know, here's how I'm addressing climate change. Here's how I'm addressing, you know, prescription drugs. That's not part of a discussion about a threat to democracy. Yeah, well, I, I think there, you know, you know, you are a fine political analyst who uses a fine tooth comb. I'm not sure how much of that really made a difference in how the the, the larger mes message was received by the people that you you know you you seem to care about and people you think are persuadable. I mean, I think one problem is the persuadable slice of the population now is probably smaller than it's ever been. I mean, I remember when I'm right about the the 2004 election. At that point. The Bush, which a lot of Democrats did not accept the legitimacy of, by the way, and 31 Democrats voted not to certify the results of that election. Yeah, exactly. But they didn't, you know, those, they didn't those, engage in violence. So it's, it's, it's not in violence. No and it was and it was right. certainly, you know, uh, as they said at the time, sort of they would call it a symbolic. They knew it was going to pass. They weren't trying to really block it. Um, and there was a symbolic gesture. And, you know, a few went a little bit beyond that. But by and large, it was not, you know, deemed a threat. And it wasn't something that was 
as part of a big lie and led led on by the national leaders of the party, right? So there is, I think, a pr pretty profound difference. And, you know, they were quibbling, not quibbling or raising issues about certain voting practices that they could that they could identify, which is unlike you know the conspiracy the Chinese did it conspiracy theories that motivated what happened on the Republican side. Now, I mean, but but back to the two thousand four election, uh, the Bush campaign at that time, you know, calculated that six percent of the population was voting. The electorate was persuadable. It used to be twenty percent. They came up with a six percent figure. I have to believe it's it's smaller than that now, and so you know you have to you, know, you can try to win over some persuadables, but at the same time you have to alert people who may not be paying close attention that the threats out there that it's real and basically we need you to take it seriously. And if you downplay the threat because you're trying to win over persuadables, you don't motivate and inspire the other people. So I mean it's a balancing act. And I mean, you know, in, in some speeches will get it more right than others. But at this point, I think, you know, you, you, know, you can't fall into the, the the both sides trap that, you know, Democrats say this, Republicans say that, you know, you basically, you know, it, it sounds old lefty, but which side are you on? You've got to you got to take a side. And if you believe that. All right, know, let's cue the song. You know, uh, Pete song. Seeger, come on. You can, you Which side in, are you on? You can right. do that in post-production. Right. Okay. Podcast. Anyway, David, I want to uh, thank you. It's been a great discussion. Even if you have no cure for the American psychosis, you do have a pretty provocative analysis. And that's the name of the book, American Psychosis, Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the great conversation.